so thankful for uh, the encouraging things that have uh, been said, even if not all of them are true. And I've been introduced so many times that next time I come, I'm going to introduce all the elders. <laughs> so I'll introduce Francis and I'm encouraged. Even last night as I went to bed, you know, I, I know I preached uh, somewhat of a, a hard text because we know that we're all, we're all proud and we know that we all seek to put ourselves in the center. But I, I want to say such an encouragement to me just to see the leadership that God's given Cornerstone. It's a huge encouragement to me. Last time I was here three years ago, when my, life, when my wife and I left, we, we just left not sure. Is Cornerstone going to exist when we come back? Is he going to be here? And I know that many of you have the same sentiments. We weren't sure what was going to happen. And <clears throat> it's just such a joy to see how the shepherd has shepherded his sheep and been so faithful and so gracious. So I'm so thankful for, for the Lord and for his bride. And I'm so thankful for the love that you've just showered upon me and my family. It's been a true blessing and a true joy. And so for this morning, for our time, I want to shift things up a little bit, and I want to turn to a familiar text in uh, an epistle of 1 John. First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, And yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we open your word to hear your truth from you. And so as we were exhorted at the very beginning of the week to dial in, we pray now that you would open our eyes once again this morning to behold wonderful things from your law. We thank you, we love you, we are in need of you now to work in our hearts and our minds. In your name we pray, amen. I want to begin just pointing out the very simple and yet profound statement in verse 5 that God is light. And I want to notice there, there's an absence of the word like. It does not say that God is like light or that God is similar to light, but that God is light. Thus we see from the beginning that it is not simply a characteristic of God, 
that John seeks to set forth to us, but that it is a, the very description of his nature, the essence of who God is. That God is morally perfect, that he is righteous, that he is just, that he is without darkness. And in, in this way, John says to us, God is holy. God is holy. And this is confirmed by what he says immediately after. And in him, there is no darkness at all. God is righteous in all his ways. He has never had one evil thought. He has never had one wrong intention. He has never made a wrong decision. God has never made a right decision with a wrong motive. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. Moses says in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm 145 verse 17 says that the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Psalm 18 verse 30 As for God, his way is blameless. God is light. He is spotless, blameless. He is perfect. He is not only the standard of goodness, but the very meaning. Brothers and sisters, when a believer dies, the first thing that he is going to realize in all of its fullness, the first thing that he is going to see, the first thing that is going to pierce his heart and his mind is the holiness of God. And when an unbeliever dies, and he wakes up in the presence of his creator, the first thing that he will behold is that God is holy. He will realize that God is not who he thought he was. He will realize that he spent his entire life believing in a God of his own creation. And he will hear the terrifying words of God as pronounced in Psalm 50, verse 21. You thought I was just like you. That so sums up our world, our nations. That people think that God is like them. And isn't it interesting that all of the idols around us look like the people that have invented them? We have the gods of money, Gods who love the things that, that man loves. We have the God of Islam who satisfies the people's desire to murder and to gratify their ungodly lusts. There is the European God, the nice God who wants man to be free and wants man to be able to do whatever he wants to do. We could go on and on and if we studied Religion, and we would see one common thread that each culture has created a God that looks just like them. And in the end, they will stand before the true God with the pronouncement, You thought that I was like you. But God is not like us, God is infinitely holy. He is so holy, so perfect, so righteous, so abhorrent to sin. That the scriptures tell us and science confirms 
that there was a flood and it destroyed every man and woman and child on the face of the earth. With the exception of Noah and his family. God is so holy that he sent fire down from heaven to burn cities to the ground. Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel, said, There is no one holy like the Lord. And in her praise and worship, she defines to us the very meaning of holiness. There is no one holy like the Lord. The very meaning of holiness. Utterly separate, utterly unique, utterly distinct, utterly cut out, utterly removed from everyone else and everything else. Totally unlike us. And yet, even as Christians, we so often think that God is like us. We even think that he might and should overlook our sin, make an exception. The world lives this way, perpetually going on, the conscience testifying within them, creation announcing to them that there is a God. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is powerful. He is just. And yet, they will hear the pronouncement, you thought I was just like you. He is nothing like us. God is light, and in him there is not a speck, not an ounce, and not a drop of unholiness. And brothers and sisters, the reason that John begins this way is because the gospel begins this way. There is no gospel without God, and there is no gospel without the true God, the holy God, the righteous God, the God who is light. The gospel message saves us from a holy God through his holy son by making us a holy people. If you have not been made holy, you do not know God. That is what verse 6 is saying. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If a person has been made holy by God, he will live holy for God. And so what John is telling us there in verse 6 is really just a description. He's giving us a description of the false believer. But then to offset that in verse 7, he says, But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Here is the description of the true Christian. He lives like God because he has been saved. He has been sanctified, made holy by God. But I want to point out something here in verse 7. I am tempted to read it or question why it's not written this way. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with, I would expect him to say, we have fellowship with him. We have fellowship with him. But he says, we have fellowship with one another. And so here John turns his, his gaze not away from God, but down to the church to show us the practical ramifications of holiness in the church. John shows us the prerequisite 
for true Christian fellowship. What would you say it is? What is the prerequisite to true Christian fellowship? What did Christ pray in John chapter 17? Father, I pray that you would make the churches big. I pray that you would, you would make the churches powerful. I pray that you would, you would give the churches great music and great worship and good praise teams. I pray, Father, that you would save the church from persecution and from suffering. Jesus Christ prayed for the church. He said, Father, sanctify them in the truth. He prayed that the Father would make his people holy. And what John says here in verse 7 is that holiness is the unifying factor of the church of Jesus Christ. Holiness is the unifying factor of the church of Jesus Christ. I know you, that's not shocking to you. You know it's true. You're used to hearing this. This is not a new message. But for so many, this is a shocking message. If they would sit down and, and, and read the Gospel of John, sit down and read 1 John, if they would sit down and read any epistle, or walk in this morning and hear what is being said from the pulpit, they would be in shock. Because we look all around us and we see that the unifying factor of so many churches is social class, race, Gender, style of clothes, style of music, preacher personality, political party, rapture position. <laughs> and yet the scripture is so, so clear. What is the unifying essence and factor of the church? First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you would proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness out of unholiness, out of sin, into his marvelous light, his marvelous holiness. Holiness is the unifying factor of the church of Christ. Into this light he is called rich people, poor people, important people, insignificant people, smart people, not so smart people like myself. He has called all kinds of people into the church. And our unifying background is that all of us were unholy. And now we've all been made holy. And it is in this new state, this position, this status of a kingdom of priests and living holiness that even Paul tells us what it is that we offer up to God. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual surface of worship. So many churches want to be known for their music, for their programs, for their welcoming team, for the exciting preacher. Brothers and sisters, how many churches are known for their holiness? How many churches are like the God they claim to worship? Here is a truth that every church needs to know. That if we are not united in holiness, we are not united to God. And I want to explain and share with you this morning why it is I think so few churches are characterized as being holy and walking in the light. 
think one of the main reasons, did we, did we turn down the monitors up here? I think one of the main reasons that churches fail to walk in holiness is because we as American Christians, we have made a dichotomy between holiness and love. Many Christians think that being united in holiness means that you cannot be loving, grace-filled, or encouraging. And the truth is that that is not possible. If a church is holy, it will be loving. What did Jesus say are the greatest commandments? What is the greatest commandment? Right? To love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. And the second is like it. It is to love your neighbor as yourself. A church that is known for being holy or pious or religious but is not loving is not a holy church. But if those people who think that holy churches are unloving because they talk about sin and confront it and reprove and rebuke and exhort with great patience, they only really reveal their unbelief and their own idolatry. There are many, many, many churches. There are hundreds of churches, even in the Czech Republic, where entire congregations will die and they will stand before God and they will hear, you thought I was just like you. The truth is that a holy church is a loving church and a loving church is a holy church. We fail at this. We fail because we know that we're sinful and that we know that when others sin, we have a tendency to think that we have no right to say anything. Brothers and sisters, there is not a preacher, there is not an elder, there is not a deacon, there is not a worship team leader, there is not a Bible study leader, there is not a husband, a father, a sister, a brother that is perfect. But there is not a man or woman in the church that ever has an excuse to not confront someone else in their sin. One of the most unloving things that you could ever do to another person is to not confront them and reprove them and rebuke them in their sin. It is the very meaning of selfishness. And so there is a reason why so many churches are filled with unholy people. It is ultimately because they are filled with cowards. There are so many that have right doctrine and are unwilling to confront unrighteousness. Pilate knew what was right, but he feared man. And there are many churches as well. They are afraid of how people will respond. Many people, they are afraid how people will respond when they confront someone. Jude, verses 21 through 23 says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Listen to this carefully. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment. You want to keep yourself in the love of God? 
confront others who aren't. Confrontation, this might sound almost legalistic to us, but confrontation is a means to keep ourselves in the love of God. Why? Because not confronting someone else is the least loving thing you could possibly do. And if you spend enough time in the local church, you will, you will quickly learn this is one of the most difficult things you could possibly do. I still remember about two years into our ministry in the Czech Republic, and it became abundantly evident to me that one of the, one of the men who had actually helped found the church, he was, I was convinced, not a believer. And he lived about seven minute walk from where I live, and we had talked about this man for over a year. I had prayed for this man for so long, and, and it had become so evident. He was just, he was, a, it was, a, he was a great weight to my heart. He was a great weight to the ministry. He was a great weight to the church, just dragging the church down. A very important man, uh, known in the entire country, on television, very prestigious. And I knew I had to talk to this man. And I remember leaving my front door, walking to his house, pleading with God, praying. And I remember thinking and realizing, this, I have never been so afraid in my life. I, why am I so afraid? Why am I so afraid to tell this man, to share my heart with him, to share the word of God with him? God provided much grace. It was a very heartbreaking time as the Lord, in some ways, even just began to gut the church and just remove people from the body that were not regenerate, that were not following Christ. And yet I'll tell you, and I told you the other morning, that one of the greatest uh, things that God used to change our church was prayer. And I would say equally was confronting people that were not walking with Christ. Those two things radically changed the church. I, I do not know the mind of God. I do not know his sovereign plan and what he was doing, what he was orchestrating, but I know this. When we began to pray and when we confronted sin, the entire church was changed. God removed unholiness and he breathed life into the church. He began to save people. He was sanctifying people, growing people. We have seen so many people over the, over the few years of our ministry, people that were seemingly converted, people that were baptized, and they seem to express some affection for Christ. And then when we, in love, go to them to, to deal with issues and sins that are, that are destroying their lives. And then we confront them lovingly, not just coming upon them and punching them, you know, but pleading with them. And those people before our eyes despising the word of the Lord because they think that God is like them. There is almost never a time, <laughs> I think every pastor can understand this, there is never a time when I look forward to confronting someone. There's never a time I just think, I can't, I can't wait to confront this person. I can't wait to reprove them and rebuke them. I, I just don't get any sense of, of joy from that or power. I'll tell you what, the most 
Discouraging times are when people don't respond, but the most encouraging times are when that brother puts his arms around you and says, I'm so thankful, so thankful that you told me these things. Because it is after we have exhorted our brother or sister and helped them see maybe something that they didn't see before, that then we can point them to the greatest news of all, the last part of verse 7. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's not a sin that is too offensive. There is not a sin that is even too vulgar, as vulgar as all sin is, and some sins even worse. There is not a sin that can outdo the cross. But it is because so many people don't value holiness, they don't even get to the gospel. Christians don't simply confront one another to tell one another how sinful they are. We confront in love to turn people back to the source of cleansing. And that is why verses 8 and 9 are so important. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice these two verses are telling us we have two options. Verse 8, that when we are confronted, we can deny our sin and reject grace. Or verse 9, we can agree, we can confess our sins and receive grace. When someone confronts us, we can deny it. There are people in this room that are living in secret sin. There are people in this room that are living a double life. There are people in this room that appear to be walking with the Lord, and yet deep in the recesses of their heart, they're really walking with Satan. And my plea with you this morning as I wake up on the news and we read about the Duggards, you know, or the Chavidians, and we can just throw out all these public names of all these people, and, I, and we step back at times and we're, we're devastated. But the truth is, brothers and sisters, we're all sinful. All of us have secret sin. And what John is saying is there is no benefit to secret sin. You know, and the Lord knows. And there are two options, to continue going on in sin, deceiving ourselves, and, I'm not, and I'm, I need to make a distinction that we're all going to sin in certain ways, we're all going to be critical, we're all going to be struggling, but there are perpetual sins, deep sins, enslaving sins, ensnaring sins, the kind of sin that is just the fact that if you do not repent from this sin, you will die in it. And so John says this morning, if we say we have no sin, we've been confronted, you know the truth. You have and you deny it. The truth is not in you. There's nothing for you. There's no hope. But in verse 9, he says, if we confess, as we have heard from, from Pastor John himself, I've mentioned beforehand this word homologeo, to agree, to agree with God, to agree with what he already knows. There's Grace. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us from our sins and to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. 
Why do we have to confess it if he already knows? Right? I go to my wife, Amy, uh, I need to confess that I, I yelled at you. Uh, I need to confess that I had a harsh attitude towards you this morning. She knows. I'm not telling her because she doesn't know. Why am I telling her? I am acknowledging to her that I know. Our confession before the Lord is, is not because he doesn't know, but it is acknowledgement, as Greg was sharing this morning, the pride, the greed, and the lust, and what? He didn't see it. And then the Holy Spirit working through the saints and through the preaching of the gospel, and all of a sudden, he sees it. And we come to the Lord and say, God, I know you already know this. But I want you to know, now I know it. Now I see it. And now I see that I need Jesus Christ. I need his mercy and I need his grace. And it is based upon this confession that God will give you the grace that you need. I told you Friday night, Proverbs 28, 13, is just a verse that is constantly in our household. If we confess our sins, or sorry, if we conceal our sins, we will not prosper. But if we confess them, we'll find mercy. And this is what John is saying. Confession and repentance are the doorway to the grace of God. There is no benefit whatsoever to conceal your transgressions. Man, Every man in this room is horrified that Google knows every single thing you have ever Googled, every single thing you have ever clicked on. It's all out there, right? What's this whole thing with this adultery website? It's just coming out in, in droves and, and everyone's finding out, man, this guy's a, he's an adulterer, right? This, this, this Christian vlogger, you know, that, that showed his, his wife on, on YouTube that, that they were pregnant, you know, he's a Christian guy and his name was on that list. And all these people are being exposed, man, when we stand before God, it's all going to be exposed. Everyone is going to see it. And yet God says, if you will confess your sins to me, you will not pay for it. Jesus Christ upon the cross made the confession for us. He took all of our sin and he brought it into the light. He took all of our sin and he brought it before the Father. So that judgment happened then and not in the future. Jesus Christ, for Marcus Denny, confessed all of my sin and took it upon himself and he paid for it in full. My confession is what I have done and my confidence is in what Christ has done. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous. And for some of us this morning, this final aspect that I want to point out to you is for some people it's far easier to confess their sins to God than to believe the message from God. It is far easier for you to confess your sins to God. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm ungodly. I know I'm unrighteous. But the real difficulty is for you to believe what God says afterwards, that you are forgiven and cleansed from all unrighteousness. It would be far easier if it said, if we confess our sins and make sure we spend enough time in prayer and said our Father 20 times, 
and then went out and gave all we have away and do all these things and follow the steps and then you will be forgiven, that would be great. Who would our confidence be in? Our assurance would be based upon what we have done. But here God says that our faith and our confidence must be in what Christ has done. True forgiveness of sin is dependent upon God and God alone. Do you want to be sure this morning that you have been forgiven? Confess your sins. Do you want proof that God has forgiven you? Do you want absolute, rock-solid proof that God will forgive you? Look to the cross. It is all the proof that you need. It is all the proof you will ever receive. The cross is the pronouncement that God is not like you. The God that we believed was a God who would overlook all of our sins. He was not a holy God. He was not a righteous God. And we would have heard, you thought I was just like you. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you this morning, that God is not like you. He is merciful and gracious and steadfast and abounding in loving kindness. And if you confess your sin to the Lord, there is not a sin that he will not forgive and he will not cleanse you from. God does not promise to cleanse us because of something we have done. And I want to point out finally, lastly this morning, that God is not even obligated to cleanse us because we have confessed. This is what I think to me is just what I, I bring to my own heart as I shepherd my own heart, as I remind myself of the gospel and my own failures in so many ways, my own sinfulness. God is not obligated to cleanse us because we have confessed. Brian Kang, man, he's in the courtroom all year long prosecuting evil things, evil crimes. And I haven't talked to him enough, but I imagine there are maybe some times when some of these guys actually confess. And when you confess, do you know what happens? Judgment. Right? The guy says, I did it, right? I kidnapped, I stole, I killed, I raped. And the judge says, oh, you confessed. You are cleansed. No. You will be punished. God is not obligated to forgive us because we confess. God will forgive us because Christ made the good confession for us. Confession does not earn God's grace. It does not make God obligated to show us grace. But confession is the means that God has chosen to show us grace. That we can even confess is grace. That we can confess and expect and believe and be absolutely certain that based upon a simple confession, the acknowledgement that God already knows and now I do, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing new that I have delivered to you this morning. It is old-fashioned, 2,000-year-old teaching that we're sinful, that we're so often laden by 
unkindness and things that are in our hearts and pride and arrogance and all the things that we looked at all this week. And this sermon is just a culmination of our unbelief, of our failure to pray, and of our desire to be first. And we bring it all together. And what is the final solution? To humble ourselves, to confess these sins. We will find mercy. And we will rise up in joy and gratitude. And we will go on as a church. We will face many difficulties. A wave of persecution is coming. Many temptations are coming. Many trials are coming. But God and his word through his bride are sufficient. Brothers and sisters, may we be faithful to love one another by confronting one another. Not judging one another, not hammering one another, not punching one another, not pushing others down to exalt ourselves up, not using their sin to rub it in their, in their face and to say, but look at me. But no, but in an expression of love, because I love you, I want you to walk in holiness. And that brother would say, because you love me, now I can walk in holiness. And because I love Christ, I want to confess my sins. I want to be right. And I want to know his grace this very moment. May we as a church, may we as churches, grasp these truths and be used greatly by God for his glory. So help us, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for your word. I thank you again for this morning. Oh, Lord, what a great joy and privilege it is to see the testimony, the public proclamation, not what they have done, but what you have done through Christ in them. Thank you again so much, Lord, for the time this weekend to spend time as a body, the body of Christ, a body that has been set apart and sanctified and made holy, brought out of darkness and into the light. So, Lord God, as the retreat ends, we are no longer retreating, but we are going back to the front lines. Lord, help us to go back and to be the lights that you have saved us to be. Let us be the testimony that you have saved us to be. Lord, whatever job that you have given to us, whatever calling you have given to us, whatever task you have called us to, Lord, give us the grace that we need to walk in the light as you yourself are in the light. We love you and we thank you so much. And I love you and I bless you, Lord. Thank you for encouraging my heart this weekend. Thank you for manifesting your love to me through these people, Lord, who have washed my feet, who have anointed my head with oil, who have served me in so many ways and encouraged me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for ministering to me. I pray that you would help me and all these saints now to minister to you. In your name we pray.